We're going to kick into this series starting today on the book of Matthew that we um, spent a lot of time naming Matthew. And um, we do have a little subtitle for it called All You Waited For. And as we talk through all this um, over the next couple weeks, um, what I want us to do is look at Matthew through this big picture lens. And what we see in the scriptures is, is really often this thing that Matthew does so unbelievably well. Is he uses this kind of tool that I'm going to call the microscope telescope method to where he continually takes this moment that's happening in the scripture, this moment in the life of Jesus, and he allows us to see it through this microscope of what happened right there, but he always does it in light of this telescopic view of looking back to the whole of scripture and being able to say, this isn't a random one-off thing, but this makes perfect sense in context. And so what I wanted us to do this morning was start with, with this little chart that you see right here. And I want to give you just a big picture overview of what this book of Matthew is all about. Now, I know it's a little small, but you can actually go onto this website called The Bible Project. I mean, just Google Bible Project Book of Matthew. And they've got some great videos that'll walk you through this chart and um, do some really cool stuff in like seven, eight minutes. If you've got just a few minutes to look at it, um, it really does an exceptional job of painting the picture of kind of the microscope and the telescope of this book of Matthew. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be framing this series in light of this little chart right here. And so today we're going to be across that top line there where we look at this introduction and we're going to be looking at this genealogy and we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus at the beginning of this book. But then what we see is that it breaks down into these five parts over the next section and then a closing with the Great Commission tacked on the very end. And when we look at the big picture of what Matthew's trying to do here, we see that one, he's trying to paint this picture that Jesus is this Messiah from the line of David. We see that he's painting this picture of Jesus as a new Moses, and we're going to dig into that a little bit later because I know that might be a little confusing. And then also this, this deep, profound sense that God is with us. And that's one of the other key things that we're going to see throughout this whole book of Matthew. And so today, as we walk through this introduction in a few minutes, we're going to tackle that. But then we're going to spend some time over the next six weeks, seven weeks, really eight weeks total, um, and look at these in a little bit more of a nuanced way. And so you'll see on the left side here, chapters four through seven. And what happens is we see at the beginning in the introduction where Jesus, where what Matthew does is he connects Jesus to the Old Testament. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, and it serves as this really great bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because one of the things that Matthew does, right, is this microscope, telescope kind of storytelling. And so as he starts his book, he starts with his genealogy, and he goes all the way back to Abraham, and he connects from Abraham all the way up to Jesus, and creates this link of the two to say they're going to be here together. And then we look at the birth of Jesus, and shortly after the birth of Jesus, we dive into chapters 4 through 7. And what we have is this announcement of God's kingdom. And so Jesus starts to proclaim, like, what is different now? And we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks and on Easter, this idea that we look at this movement of God. And so we as people, because of Jesus' coming onto earth, means that we are no longer here to change the world. We're here to live in light of a world that has been changed. And so this is different, right? Because once Jesus comes, it's like everything's different on the other side of it. And so as we look at that in 4 through 7, we see this declaration of the announcement of God's kingdom. And at the end of that first block, we have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out this whole idea of this new way of life in the kingdom of God. 
And then we go into chapters 8 through 10 and we see that these stories aren't just pieced together individually, but there's really this beautiful thing that Matthew's doing from beginning to end as he makes his case. And as we look at this next section right here in chapters 8 through 10, we see this idea of Jesus bringing this kingdom of God, not just as this conceptual idea, but it's like this real life integrating people on people. And so the way he does this is he tells these three stories of Jesus's interactions with people where he brings forth this kingdom. And then he says like, y'all should follow me. And he kind of puts out this declaration and invitation. And then he goes back through and he has three more of these stories. Like if you didn't get it last time, here's another try. And then he's like, come on, you should really follow me. And then he goes and he interacts with three more people with these stories. And at the end of that, he goes and he grabs his disciples and he says, okay, like you should be getting the gist of this now. So now I'm going to send you out. And he goes and sends his disciples out. And then we see in this next block, right, we get this next passage right here of 11 through 13. And as we look at this, it's this sending out and we get this picture of who really is the friends and who are the foes of Jesus. And as we look at this box and as we look at these passages, we see different people interact with Jesus in different ways. We see some of them come up to Jesus and they just see him for who he is, right? And they're like, you are the Messiah. And they fall all in following Jesus. For some of them, they come in and they're like, we're not totally convinced. We're going to need a few more miracles to see here, right? And they just want to like feel it out for a little bit. And then you get to this third group and it's a lot of these religious leaders at the time who are just like, nope, you're not it. And then at the end of this, we get these, this, through this whole section right here, we get this batch of parables that are coming in and out. And one of them, maybe you're familiar with, is this parable of seed. And Jesus tells this story about how the seed gets thrown out. And sometimes it lands on ground that is really fertile and it's just ready to sprout up. And then sometimes it lands on this soil where there's just a little bit in the, in the, and it can go up and the seed can start growing, but it doesn't have any roots, so it doesn't stick around very long. And then some of it just falls on a rock and the sun just scorches it and it's gone. And so you see, there's like this whole block that tells this story through these individual stories and then Jesus through these parables about the kingdom. And then we go into chapters 14 through 20. And what we see here is this change in expectations about the Messiah and what it looks like to live in this kingdom of God. And one of the things that we see in this kingdom of God is Jesus often takes expectations about how things are culturally, about how things are supposed to be, maybe even about our human sinful nature. And he flips them upside down and he says, no, 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 no. He says, in my kingdom, it's like this. It's like first shall be last kind of stuff. It's like if you want to experience real wealth, like give it away. It's this idea of all these different pictures of what it looks like and say, we're not about revenge, but we're about forgiveness. And then in chapters 21 to 25, we get this Palm Sunday moment. And we're going to, you know, do that on Palm Sunday. We're going to be talking about that. And we're going to look at this clash of kingdoms, right? About this idea that this Messiah is supposed to come in. He's supposed to show up on the scene and be this like disruptive military force that's going to take over Rome and dominate. And it's going to be like the king of the Jews. But Jesus comes in. He's like, no, it's actually this king of all. And it's not just for the Jews, but it's for all people. It's for the Gentiles. It's for us. It's for the messed up, broken sinners, the outcasts. It's for all of us. And he comes in and he doesn't come in in this moment of power and military might. But he actually shows up on this donkey and bringing in this way of peace. Then the next week, we're going to celebrate Easter, and that's kind of the bottom line right there. And we see the death, and we see the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to celebrate, and we're going to teach, and we're going to talk through this idea that we're not here to change the world, but we're here to live in a changed world. And what that means for us as followers of Jesus. And then in the very last week, Nikki's going to set us up with the Great Commission, the last passage where Jesus sends all of his people out, and he says, I want you to go And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in light of all that you've just seen. 
And then after that, as we start saying, okay, we're called to go, we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about the future and the vision of our church and saying, okay, where is it, God, that you want us to be and where is it that you want us to go and what is that going to look like? So that's like, for anybody that ever says I'm not prepared, that's the next 10 weeks. All right? And so we're excited about it. I think it's going to be a really helpful time. But as we do this right over these next few weeks, I think I'm going to be coming to you from a little bit of a different angle. You know, there's preachers and then there's teachers. And I think um, God has given me a little bit more gift in the preaching category. And so that means I take a little bit of information and try to bring you a lot of transformation from it. And I think teachers do a good job of taking a lot of information and then putting some transformation on the backside of it. Normally, I'm more of a preacher. But these next few weeks, bear with me, I'm going to try to be a teacher. And if it gets really boring, you're like, this isn't good, just kind of do one of these and I'll pick up on it and um, I'll speed it up and get moving on to the next point, okay? And so we're going to try that. But one of the things that I want to teach us this morning is a little bit about how we deal with the Bible. Okay, we, we have these scriptures and as we carry these and as we talk through them, we say we want to build our lives on the reality of Jesus. Well, the reality of we get about who Jesus is comes from the scriptures. And so as we look at the scriptures, um, this is where we get the story of salvation, this is where we get the story of Jesus. This is where we get the story of who we are. This is where we get the story of whose we are. And this is where we get the story of how to live in light of the reality of God's kingdom going forward. And so we, when we look at scripture, we often hear the phrase, right? We want to be biblical, right? We want to live according to the Bible. We want to live according to scripture. And so I want to be a part of a biblical church that teaches the Bible. I want to be, you know, my life built on the Bible. I want to have a biblical response to these decisions. But the reality is we can come at the scripture in a lot of different ways where we're using the Bible, not so much as like a tool, but sometimes it kind of gets turned into a weapon, doesn't it? And it isn't like this sense of like we're pulling life out of it, but we're sort of using it to control. And so there's this phrase we're going to use a lot over the next couple of weeks is this idea that a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Okay, let me say that again. A text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And you might be able to use some context clues and figure out what pretext is, but if you don't, I'm just going to define it for you, okay? A pretext is when we use a situation to cover up basically a falsehood. And so to give you kind of an illustration of this, um, last Sunday was my daughter Caroline's birthday, um, and we had a couple of her friends over to our house to surprise her, and so I had to get her out of the house so that some of her friends could get into the house to surprise her, right? And so I told Caroline, I said, Caroline, Mr. Michael's having a party for the band at uh, Mr. Martin's house who lives in our neighborhood, and he asked me to go get some pizzas and pick them up and go drop them off at his house for this party for the band, so we're going to say hey to him. She's like, cool, whatever, hops in the car, leaves with me, right? So that story that there's a party over there that we got to go get some pizza for and take them to is really a pretext, okay? It's like the thing we tell that isn't really true to make the case for what we're trying to get true. So a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever we want it to mean. And so we can get some very dangerous theology when we don't use context well. And so as we look at this, I wanted to give you just kind of an extreme example of this, all right? So let's imagine somebody comes into my office and they're like, hey, pastor, I got this situation at work and I need some help with it, okay? And they said, I work at this company and the boss is great. He's wonderful, but um, he's brought his kids in to work with us. And one of them's going to run it and kind of take over. And, and I don't like him and they don't seem to be very good people. And they're not playing by the rules and they've done some unethical things and I don't really like it. And then, you know, they kind of keep telling me the story and they're like, and honestly, quite frankly, they're just kind of mean to me and they call me names sometimes and they just pick on me. And I, I just, I just don't know what to do. What's, what's something in the Bible that could kind of guide my direction in that pastor? And I was like, oh, I got it. 
this is all you need to do. You need, you need to go to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, and there's this great passage about what to do when you're getting picked on, right? So here's how it goes. It says, from there, Elijah went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and started yelling at him. Get out of here, Baldy. They said, get out of here, Baldy. Right? It's like the exact same story, right? It's just like this guy is dealing with these young kids who are making fun of him. So he turns around, he looks at him, and he calls down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears come out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys, and he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Right? Like, you got it, man. That's what you do. It's biblical. Call a curse. Send the bears. Maul them all. Right? No, that's not biblical in any way, right? And the reason is, is because there's different ways that we approach the scripture and different scriptures teach us different things. Some of them are descriptive of this movement of God and some of them are prescriptive that actually tell us how to live, right? And so when we look at this passage, it is not prescriptive, right? So it is not biblical to like do that to your boss, right? It's not biblical to do that to people that pick on you. But it is prescriptive of a narrative that when we go back to Genesis, we see the sin and the brokenness of the world. And we see God begin to walk through Abraham and bring restoration to the world. And as he's doing that, one of the ways he does that is through his prophets. And he shows up into this culture and into this world that is so ungodly. And as he's this prophet, Elijah, is walking along the road, right? He's coming down and he's getting ready to bring God's word. And he's getting ready to bring this movement of God through these people and into this nation whose main language is violence. And as they show up into this place, Elijah comes bringing the word of God and these people come and they threaten to kill God's messenger in this place. And he calls out and he's like, God, I need you to protect me. And God's like, I'm going to protect you. And the story of redemption keeps on moving through this moment. So that passage is not prescriptive of like, that's what we do when someone's getting picked on. But it's descriptive of the story of God that's moving from beginning to end. But there's other passages, right, that are prescriptive, right? We can say, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up, right? As long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, right? So when we take those passages and say, okay, like that's your deal and that's your situation, well, maybe there's other passages that maybe are a little more prescriptive of how we should interact with those situations instead of just descriptive. And now I know that's kind of an extreme example of it, but I think you get the context of what I'm trying to say there. And so when we look at this, right, it's really important that we understand scripture in all of its context, right? Because if we're going to put a passage in context and say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever we want it to mean, we have to understand where these things fit in their context. And so I want to give you just a little framework to kind of look from Genesis to Revelation in four big movements of scripture. And you'll see them up here on the screen. And on one end, we start with creation, right? And we see this image of creation. God creates the world and the word that probably could just hover over creation is the word peace. Everything is as God intended it to be. Intentions are pure. Actions are pure. There's just this sense of harmony and peace. But then we see the next box, right? And sin enters into the world. And the serpent comes in and then there's this brokenness in the world and we're created in the image of God but now we're tainted with this original sin and this sense that like our flesh wants to do these things that are against the way that God had created us in the beginning. And so because of this problem of sin in the world, what we see in the scriptures is God begins this movement of redemption. And we can go back to Abraham and we see God begins to form his people, this nation of Israel that continues to expand from Abraham's family to the nation of Israel to ascend to eventually all people who walk this earth. And so as we look at that, right, we get this story of redemption that culminates in the cross, 
And when we see this culmination and we see this story of redemption culminate in the cross, after that we get this picture of redemption, right? And we go to Revelation and what we get is this picture of this new Jerusalem. We get this picture of this new city that looks like us living back like it looked like in the garden where peace reigns again, where justice is restored and all wrongs are made right. And so we see the scriptures as this beginning of creation. We see the fall. We see this redemption story of Jesus. Then we get to the book of Acts. We see the church start and there's this movement of God that leads us to revelation and restoration. So when we look at scripture, it's so crucial that we see it in the context that it's in. And so as I give you that this morning, right, there's this picture that when we come to Matthew, Matthew is really the story of redemption. It's the culmination of the story of redemption. And so we see at the beginning of the passage with Matthew, as we look at this, that we look at the beginning of it. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Matthew chapter one. And as it starts off, there's this sense of the genealogies. And we see those listed there. If you've never had a sermon on the genealogies, get ready. It's going to be fun. But as we look at it, right, we just kind of start skimming through it. And it really looks like it's just this big, long list of names. But it's really much more than that because it's this story within the story. It's this bridge from New Testament to Old Testament. It's this sense of taking the microscope and looking at the birth of Jesus, but also grabbing the telescope and looking all the way back to the beginning of Abraham. And so what we see embedded through this genealogy is really the story of the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people. And so as we see this, right, it starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, and so he sets this context. And then what we're going to see through the rest of chapter 1 is there's three batches of 13 names of people who lead God's people. Okay, and so it starts off with Abraham, and it goes, Abraham, the father of Isaac, and it moves all the way down to Jesse, the father of King David. And then we go to the next part, right? And we get this batch of 13 people that starts with David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then at the end of that passage in verse 11, if you got your Bibles out, we see this little phrase that says, then this guy led us and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So I'm gonna come back to that in just a second. And then we get the next 13 that starts with this guy named Jehoaniah. So if you're looking for a good biblical name, there you go. And grab that one. But the last of those 13 is Jesus. And then in verse 17, we get this phrase. It says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And so Matthew, he puts these genealogies in three big groups And at the end of it, he gives us this distinction of saying, okay, here's the microscope of what's happening, but we got to look at the telescope and look back. And what we start to see is this story that isn't a one-off story. It isn't this picture where like, you know, Jesus showed up on the scene, he started doing cool stuff and people were like, well, that's kind of neat and everything like that. Let's follow him and take some notes, right? But Matthew understands that this is a part of a much bigger story. This is within a context of this grand story of redemption that God is telling from beginning to end. And Matthew seems to have the wherewithal, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be able to grasp what is happening in this moment and connect it to the bigger story. And so we see him do this in kind of this brilliant way because as he lays out these generations that go back to Jesus, really he begins to tell it within this grand framework of the scriptures. And so we say that we see creation, we see fall, we see redemption, and then we see restoration. 
And so what we see in this genealogy is the first batch of 13 names is really the creation of Israel. We see Abraham as the father, and then we see David who leads Israel at its culmination. And so you have this story of creation of God's people. And then the next thing we see is this, this batch of names that culminate, like I said just a minute ago, that says, with his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. And it's really about the fall of Israel in this next section. And then we get this third batch of names that leads us up to the 13th one being Jesus, who is really the redemption of Israel. And so right in this story, we just see how important it is for Matthew. As dry as all that list of names may be, in some sense, he includes women, he includes the forgotten, he includes these folks who are just the fringe from the margins, people who should not be encountered in there, people culturally that would have been outcasts. He's like, no, they're a part of the story. And it paints this picture that Jesus, as he steps onto the scene as this redeemer, as he steps in as the one who's going to take on sin and death and bring life on the other side of it, he paints this picture that this is not a one-off microscopic event where we're like, wow, that incarnation thing was weird, right? He's like, no, this has been going on for a long, long time. And we can go back to Genesis and creation. We can see sin in the garden. We can see God begin to build his people through Abraham. And there's going to be a time of restoration that is to come. And he says that big story, that's also a smaller story. And we see that smaller story through the nation of Israel where we see this creation of God's people. We see the fall of God's people. And then we next see the restoration, the redemption of God's people culminating in Jesus in the rest of the scriptures, post the gospels, we see this redemption and this restoration that leads us to revelation into this new heaven and this new earth where all is made right. And so as we look at this in the big picture, right, we see another picture of it in Genesis, I mean, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter two with the birth of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and I'm really encouraged that no one's done this yet, okay? So that's good, you're still with me, all right? At least you haven't done it so that I can see it. And so in, Gen in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, we get this picture of the birth of Jesus and we kind of get this microscope view of it. But then when it comes up to the end of it, we get this story told with, J with Joseph and what's happening to Joseph after the birth. And so it's, it gets just like really, really human right here, right? And for those of us that, you know, I'm still at 10,000 feet, I get that. But you can come down to a little more narrow level here because what has happened is real life is hitting the fan here for Joseph. Like he has the birth, all the people come, you know, it's kind of crazy. Like all the things that have been promised were true, but now it's like the unexpected hits to him. And he's like, wait, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't how life's supposed to go. This isn't how it's supposed to be. I thought we gave birth to this Messiah, to this King. Isn't everything supposed to be good and everything's supposed to be wonderful and everything's supposed to be great. We've done all the right things. I did what you told me to do, God. And here, now we're just going to get dealt another blow. And it's like this microscopic view of what happens in a Matthew chapter two, verse 14. I'm sorry, 13. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and he says, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And then we get like this microscope view of the humanity of the story. And it says, so he gets up and he takes the child and his mother during the night and leaves for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so we feel that, right? The sense of like, man, we, we got to, turn course. This isn't what we wanted. This isn't what we hoped for. This wasn't in the plan. But in that microscopic moment of confusion, of chaos, and all those things, Matthew immediately after pulls out the telescope 
And in verse 15, and he says, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet in Hosea chapter 11, verse one, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so there's this sense that this suffering, this, there's this sense of this disruption, there's this sense that this plan that isn't going the way everybody expected it to, God still has purpose in it. And when we look at our stories, when we begin to look at our lives, when we begin to look at our histories, I think we find our story within this bigger story. And so when I talk about, right, this sense of like, I'm going to teach a lot longer than I'm going to preach for a little bit, I'm shifting gears, I'm going to preach now, Okay. And when we look at this, right, we say, wow, that's the big story. But that big story is really our story. That story is really us, right? Because we look and we say, we experience creation, right? We experience the fall. We, we, we creation in that we're born in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. But yet we also experience the sin and the brokenness of this world and our flesh. And we've experienced that fall. And so then we get to this place where we have to say, okay, what is redemption? Have we received redemption through Jesus? And we say, it's no longer about my kingdom, it's about thy kingdom. And we no longer live for our will and our glory, but we choose to flip that upside down, right? And say, this is now about the kingdom of God. And it's not about me, but it's about others. And it's about worshiping and giving thanks to a savior who has redeemed us. And then we move forward and become a part of restoration, right? Where it isn't that we're here to change the world, but we're here to live in a changed world and testify to it in the way that we live. And so as we see that, and as we look at that, right, we start to find our story in the bigger story. And when I think about my life, I, I love this so much, and, and I'm just so thankful to God for this story that's kind of been told in my life and in my family's life. And if you've ever been to one of our New to Good News classes, um, I've shared this story at some level, but um, whenever I get frustrated Whenever I get kind of caught up on the microscope of work and me being the pastor and the frustrations that that can bring, the challenges that can bring, the doubts that that can bring, the insecurities that that can bring, all those kind of things, the stuff that I'm like, maybe somebody is going to do this and then I'm going to be like, start sweating up here and not know what to do. You know, like all that that brings, right? All those things, like whenever I start to deal with that, if I just stay in the microscope, I can get so swallowed by those issues of the day to day. I can get so caught up with the things that aren't the way I want them to be. I can get so caught up with the things that I wish were different. And I can start to play this doubt game of like, you know, maybe this isn't even supposed to be. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. All this, you know, all that stuff. And we can live there. And I think you can kind of put that in your, in your shoes, in your story too, right? But the thing is, when we start to look at our whole story, and I think as we begin to look back, we can see God working in so many ways that brings us to the places that we are. And I think in my life, I can go back to college and I was um, a junior in college. We were getting ready to go on spring break and um, we hadn't made good plans like, you know, juniors in college often do. And so we decided we were just going to go to the beach. School got over, me and a few buddies, we hopped in the car and we said, we're just going to drive to Florida. We'd never been to the Florida beaches and we wanted to see them. And so we're, we're coming down and we get a little bit down the road and one of the guys in the car with us, he says, you know, now that I think of it, I have this like kind of old uncle that's kind of out there that um, he has a beach house in this little town called Seaside. Maybe we can see if that house is open. And he's like, great. So we call him, sure enough, the house is open. He's like, you can stay there for a couple nights. So we come down, you know, I grew up like basically in the middle of a cornfield in Illinois. And so the first time I got to Seaside and saw those beaches and all that stuff, I was just like, this is incredible. I don't want to leave, right? And I remember thinking to myself at a restaurant down there that I thought, when I get married, I'm going to bring my wife here on honeymoon. 
And so well, sure enough, I meet Rachel, we get engaged, all that kind of stuff. And we're setting the plans. So let's go on a honeymoon in Seaside. She's like, let's do it. So we go spend a week there. And we're sitting here on our honeymoon. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we just kind of always came back to this place that we love so much and let's just make it a part of our kid's childhood. And we want to bring them here over and over. And they're going to know like, this is the beach. This is the place we went to. And we're like, that's great. So eventually we, we do that several times over and our kids are getting older. And we have our third child, Owen. And Owen was born. He's about two years old. He's finally old enough that we felt like we could handle him at the beach for a little bit at least. And so we come down here and we get to the beach and we're getting ready to leave after the end of that few days. And we go into the store down in, um, down on 30A there and we're checking out and Rachel's buying something. There's this lady at the counter. She says, Hey, she says, so what do you do? I said, Oh, I pastor a church in Mobile. And she said, Oh, what kind of church? And I said, Oh, it's a Methodist church. And, and I can remember this just clear as day. She like slapped both hands down on the table and she said, well, I go to the best Methodist church there is in town here. And I was like, ooh, cool. You know, like we're like in a duel here. Like which one's better, right? And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And so we get back out to the car. I'm sitting there with Rachel. And I was like, you know, I was like, we could live here. Like, that'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? And so I was like, I didn't even know there's a church. So I put it in the GPS and we drive up into the parking lot out here and we're sitting in that moment. And I just kind of had this prayer with our family. And I was like, Lord, if you want to ever open that door, we'd sure walk through it, you know? And that was kind of the end of it. And I remember, you know, in our, in our world, you know, we, our bishop sends us to places and we don't, you know, tell the bishop where we're going. And so I was kind of nervous, even like being on the parking lot. Somebody's going to see me and be like, what are you doing here? You know? And so as we're pulling out, I always remember that I almost took out the mailbox right here on 98. We moved it, thankfully. So it's not there anymore. And I was like, man, that'd have been a disaster having to explain that, right? Like why I was here. And so anyway, time goes on and the doors open for us to be able to come here. And as I look back, right, like I can get in this moment of the microscope and I'm like, God, this is so stressful. All these things, da, da, da. It's like, I have to pull out that telescope and look back and be like, no, 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 no. Like God has been working this story in my life for a long, long time. And I need to live into that. I need to believe into that. And I need to trust that and to know that God's with, God's for, God's in me in this moment. And I think for us, as we think about our story, and as we think about our life, and as we think about our journey, and as we begin to face these obstacles that come at us right here and right now, I think we can take the same tactic that Matthew uses to proclaim the goodness and the bigness of God, to proclaim the goodness and the bigness of God in our lives. And that when we name that thing right now that's all just frustrating and eating us alive, that what it looks like for us to pull up that telescope and look back and to say that God has been faithful here, God has been faithful here, God has been faithful here, over and over again. And when we see that faithfulness of God in the past, it gives us the courage to live faithfully in the present. And what Matthew does in this story is he says, no, look at this. Look at this Messiah who's come onto the scene. Look at this Jesus who's coming for everybody. Not just the privilege, not just those who, who've got the pedigree, those who've got the history, those who've got the genealogy, all those things. He's like, he is here for you. And you can choose to live in the truth of that in the microscope of all of the challenges, all the struggles, all the issues, and all the problems that we have right now. Because we serve this God who has been through creation. He's been through the fall. He has brought redemption through Jesus. And he is here to make all things new. He changed the world through Jesus. And so we get to live as people in a changed world. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to dig into this more and more and more and keep looking at it. But I want you to just see the beauty of the story that God tells through these gospels. And I want these scriptures to just come to life and they don't just become isolated little pieces of passages that we pull out, you know, sort of like in a moment's notice when we need some quick quip to say something and that we're not going to, you know, pull things out of context, but we're going to really see the beauty of the big picture 
of what God's doing through this gospel, of what God's doing through this story, and about how our stories come in alignment with this story of redemption, about how we are God's people in this place at this time, living in light of the truth of this story. So as we move forward over these next few weeks, I hope you'd take this, this reading plan that you'd be reading along with us and that you'd be following along reading these words and as you read them, that you'd keep this little guide handy next to you and you'd allow it to give you some context because a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever we want it to mean. And we want to be people who live faithfully in light of the truth of the gospel and what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be in this place and this time. Amen. You have been listening to sermon audio from Good News Church in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. We have Sunday services at 815, 930, and 11. If you are interested in finding more information on our church or ways to get further involved, visit goodnewschurch.life. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you soon.